right. and says amen to that, amen. If that thunder came through, I couldn't help but remember an old saying that Vance Havner used to make. Uh, he said, whether the weather be cold or whether the weather be hot, whether the weather will weather the weather, whether we like it or not. Isn't that great? <laughs> Go ahead and open in your, be opening your Bibles, please. The book of Exodus, the book of Exodus tonight will be in the third chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3 this evening. Exodus chapter 3. There are two Bible stories that are so iconic that everybody knows them. I mean, lost people know these Bible stories. Lost people could recount for you the stories, that I'm, the two that are of the Old Testament, the two most iconic Bible stories. The first one, obviously, the most well-known Bible story. You learned it from the time you were just a little kid going to junior church or Sunday school, is the story of a young shepherd boy who goes to visit his three older brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, who are there uh, in the battle uh, there, uh, with the Valley of Elah between the children of Israel and the Philistine armies. And this young shepherd boy shows up just in time to see this giant step down and do what he's been doing for 40 days challenging the people of Israel saying he send you a man to fight me if he defeat me then we'll I'll be your will be your servants and serve you but if I defeat him and kill him then you'll be our servants and serve us he said I defy the armies of Israel choose you a man to fight me and so for 40 days and 40 nights the children of Israel cowered in their tents in fear of this one giant it always makes me wonder why they didn't just 
just all attack him at the same time. There's no honor in this war. All's fair in love and war. But they just stood there and waited and cowered in fear, expecting King Saul, who they'd chosen to go before them and to judge them and to fight their battles. They waited for King Saul to go and fight the battle against Goliath of Gath. But he cowered in his tent as well. David got there and heard Goliath offer his challenge. And he said, what should be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and removeth this reproach from Israel? They said, well, his father's house is going to be made free in the land. He's going to get a reward from the king. And he's going to get to marry the king's daughter. I'm assuming that was a positive. She may have been real ugly. I do not know. But he's going to be part of the royal family. David's oldest brother, Eliab, who Samuel thought should have been the next king, when the Lord told him, Look not on the height of his stature, nor on his countenance, for I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not his man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And Eliab says, begins uh, to ridicule David and said, I know the nuttiness of thy heart. He said, Who keepeth those few sheep back in the wilderness? Yeah. David said in 1 Samuel 17, 29, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? He goes to King Saul and says, Saul, you know, I'd like to go down and defeat this giant. And Saul, in one of the fallacies of logic, one of the biggest ones in all the Word of God, says, you can't go fight him. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was a youth. <laughs> in other words, he started when he was your age, but I'm not going to let you start at your age. He said, what qualifications do you have? And he said, well, in the keeping my father's sheep, I have killed a bear and a lion. Most people, most Christians sitting in the pew are under the impression that David used his sling to kill the lion and the bear. But if you read the passage, you'll find David killed the lion by grabbing him by his beard. Don't you love that? David was Chuck Norris before there was a Chuck Norris. Yeah. This is a tough guy. You grab a lion by the beard. Saul finally says, go on down. He puts his armor on David. And David said, I can't wear this. I haven't proved that he stopped by that, uh, that little lake, that little uh, creek that goes through there at the Valley of Elah. Picks up five smooth stones and walks out. And Goliath sees him coming. And finally, a champion has come out to fight Goliath. And he realized, just a teenage boy. He said, am I a dog that you send a child to fight me? And he looks at David and says, come on, son, you come to me, I'm going to break you in peace. I'm going to feed you to the birds. And David said, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. He said, by the time this battle's over, you're going to be the bird feast, Goliath, not me. Goliath starts running towards David. Don't you love that? Goliath starts running towards David. I imagine it was like, like uh, uh, an adult playing peekaboo with a child. You ever done that? And you go like that and they jump away and they run as fast as they can. Goliath thinks that just lurching at David is going to cause him to run. But David just starts running towards Goliath, pulls a stone out, puts it in his sling, winds it up. And being born in West Virginia, the Bible says specifically that he slang it. I love that. Come on. Yeah. Let's make no mistake about it. David was probably an extremely good marksman with his, spear, with his, uh, with his uh, sling and those stones. But he wasn't that good. He wasn't good enough to hit a moving target while he was on a dead run in the one square inch of his body that wasn't covered with armor. Dave, let's make no mistake about it. David gets the credit, but God killed Goliath. God guided that stone, not David's marksmanship. David comes and pulls his sword out of his sheath and severs the giant's head from his body and stands there with his foot on the chest of Goliath, holding his head above his head as the Philistines flee. And every Christian that has ever lived would like to do something so monumental for God like that that they're still talking about it 3,000 years from now. But there's another story, second to this one, not quite as famous, but everybody knows it. The lost world knows it. It's the story of an 80-year-old man. 
standing at the banks of the Red Sea with the mountain ranges of Pihahiroth and Migdal and Belsiphon all around them as he stands there with the army of Pharaoh barreling down on top of them and he holds out his hands and stretches his rod over the water and Almighty God stuck his finger in the water and parted it with a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left and every Christian that's ever lived no matter what their personal walk with the Lord is like would love to do something so monumental for God that the world still talks about it 3,300 years later. But you know, if Moses, if we'd put an ad in the newspaper in Whiteville and said, listen, we want to hire a man to lead one and a half million Israelites out of bondage, to stand in front of Pharaoh and be God's man, and Moses sent us his resume... Not only would we not have hired Moses, we would have laughed, made photocopies of his resume, posted on Facebook, Instagram, and tweeted it out, tweeted it out for everybody to see. We'd have made fun of this unqualified Moses. By the time Moses gets called by God in our passage tonight, he's already been a failure at everything he has ever tried. Notice what happens to him. The Bible tells us that there he is, the son of Pharaoh's daughter living in the palace. And he walked out to look on his brethren. He spied an Egyptian, smiting in Hebrew, one of his brethren. And when he had looked this way and that way, and when he saw there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. I don't care what preacher wants to make that sound like something glamorous. This is not the activities of a deliverer. This is the activity of a cold-blooded murderer. It's not something that Pharaoh's house was supposed to do to Egyptians. Moses has been a failure as an Egyptian. He goes out the next day and sees two Hebrews striving together. And he says to the one that did the wrong, he looks at him and asks him what's going on. He says, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest this Egyptian? He's been a failure as an Israelite trying to put people together, trying to solve all their problems, trying to come up with peace among everybody, these warring factions of Israel. He's been a failure as an Egyptian. He's been a failure as an Israelite. He's been a failure as a deliverer. The Bible says when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. He's been a failure as an Egyptian. He's been a failure as an Israelite. He's been a failure as a deliverer. He's been a failure at everything he's ever set his hand to do. And now 40 years later, he's living as a fugitive in Midian. So, and I want you to notice what the passage says about him, please. In chapter 3 and verse 1, just keep your Bibles open. We'll be in this passage, this chapter, the entire time. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. You can stop right there. That speaks volumes about Moses, doesn't it? All around our world right now, there are Christian young men that are on their knees praying. Dear Lord, please send me to the right woman, the right helpmeet, the right completer, the right spouse, the one that is the exact perfect one that you've chosen for me. Lord, please send me to the right wife. Lord, give me a wife, give me a spouse, give me a helpmeet, give me a completer. But there is no place on this planet right now where there's a Christian young man on his knees saying, Dear God, please give me a father-in-law. Nobody wants a father-in-law. You know what the difference is between your father-in-law and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. 
You can't negotiate with your father-in-law. Nobody wants to work for their father-in-law. Nobody can criticize you like your father-in-law did. My father-in-law came down and spent a couple of days with us. He'd been there for two days. And I, I, I just, I walked outside. I grabbed my cell phone. I called my little brother, Philip. And I said, Philip, listen. I said, I want you to do something I've never asked you to do before. Just tell me that I'm awesome. He said, what do you mean? I said, just tell me I'm awesome. He went on and on. You're such a great big brother. You're the best big brother that's ever lived. I just don't know how anybody ever lived before you came along as a big brother. You're just wonderful. After a few minutes of that, he said, now why did I just do that? I said, because my father-in-law has been here for two days and I haven't done one thing right in 48 hours. I just needed to hear someone tell me I can do something right. <laughs> Moses is working for his father-in-law. By the way, your father-in-law, if you work for your father-in-law, your father-in-law didn't want to hire you anyway. He only hired you because he didn't want his daughter to go hungry. He didn't want his grandchildren to starve. And you were only working for him because Walmart, Kmart, McDonald's, and Wendy's turned down your application. It's not a marriage that is made out of joy. It's a marriage made out of necessity when you work for your father-in-law. The only job Moses can find is working for his father-in-law. There's a reason for that. This young man on the front row, I know I got his name a while ago. What's your name, buddy? Austin, thank you. I'm going to have you help me. I'm going to ask you a question just so everybody in the room knows that you're not a plant in the audience, all right? Have you ever gotten a paycheck for being a shepherd? Ever? You're not a full-time shepherd. You don't have sheep. You don't, you don't spend all your day out in the fields or anything like that. Just want everybody to know that you're not a plant, all right? So you're not a sheep expert, are you? Okay, excellent. I want you to notice what the Bible says, please. Now, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father. That means he's a shepherd, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert. Now, Austin, help me. If you had sheep, if you were going to be a shepherd, what, are, what, what is one thing that you want to make sure those little sheep had? One thing that they have to have to live. Food. Great, wonderful. And you're sure you're not a full-time shepherd? Okay. What do sheep eat? Do you know what sheep eat? You're exactly right. Sheep eat grass. So Austin, if he were going to go into the employment of being a shepherd, would make sure his sheep had grass, correct? Now, once they've eaten that grass and their mouth is dry, what do they need next? Water. So you're telling me, not being a full-time shepherd, never having a job as a shepherd, that you know that sheep need grass and sheep need water, correct? I'm going to have you help me one more time. Watch what it says, please. Moses kept the flock of Jethro's father, all the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert. Austin, help me. When you close your eyes and picture a desert, what are two things you don't picture in a desert? What else? Grass, and what else is not in a desert? Water. So you know Moses led those sheep to the one place on the planet where they're guaranteed to die? Can you imagine those poor sheep? You said, Brother Harper, there might have been an oasis there. You know, there might have been. I'm reading what my Bible says. It says that he led the flock to the backside of the desert. He led sheep who need grass and water to a place where there is no grass and water. Can you picture those poor, starving, anorexic sheep trying to find one blade of grass in the sand there in the desert, licking the ground, trying to get some kind of moisture out of the sand, coming back every single day after Moses is done, thinner and thirstier than they were the day before? Imagine how Moses' father-in-law talked about Moses when the sheep got skinnier and skinnier. You know, if you asked Moses' sheep, if you said, do you think Moses is a good shepherd? They would have said, no, he's bad. 
He's been a failure as an Egyptian, a failure as an Israelite, a failure as a deliverer. He's been a failure as a son-in-law, and he's been a failure as a shepherd. He's not done anything well. My father used to tell me all the time when I, would, when I was younger and asked him when he was going to let me get my driver's license or was going to let me drive the car. He would say this. I don't know if your dad ever said this. He said, son, you couldn't drive a thirsty horse to a water hole. I don't know where he came up with that, but he said it all the time. Moses can't drive thirsty sheep to a water hole. He's been a failure at everything he's ever done. Now watch what happens, please. At the end of the verse, and he came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him. Now from this moment on, for the remainder of this chapter and most of the next one, what you have is a conversation. This is not an epistle given to help us govern the church. It's not a biographical sketch of our Savior called the Gospel. It's not a Chronicles or the Kings or Samuel, the books of Samuel telling us about the history of the kings of Israel. It's not prophecy telling us about our soon coming and returning Savior. No, what you're going to read now is something that's a little bit unusual in Scripture. It's throughout the Word of God. What you're going to read is an actual conversation between Almighty God and one human being. It's important that we interpret the Scriptures correctly because everything that God says can apply to every one of us in this auditorium. Make no mistake about it. But the fact is, everything that God said had a primary interpretation for Moses before anybody else. God is talking directly to Moses. Now watch what happens, please. And he said, and when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called on him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look upon God. Now I want you to notice Moses there, 80 years of age barefoot with his face on the ground because he didn't want to look at Almighty God. He had no problems knowing who he was talking to. God had introduced himself, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And now God begins in verse 7 to tell us a little bit about Himself. Wonderful, wonderful things that God teaches about Himself in verses 7 and 8. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. Please understand this. This is not some disinterested God floating in the heavens, not not concerned about the affairs of humanity. This is a God who tells Moses, I'm watching everything that's going on down there. I'm watching everything that my people are doing. It's a good thing and a bad thing, isn't it? It's a bad thing when we consider that He's watching us when we sin. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Neither is there any creatures not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Psalm 1 and verse 6. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Amos chapter 8 and verse 9. The eyes of the Lord are over the sinful kingdom. He sees every single thing that we do. He sees every time we sin, but He also sees every time we're in need. And God says, I've seen the affliction. I know what's going on down there. I know what Pharaoh is doing to my people. Notice, not only does He see it, I've surely seen the affliction of my people which in Egypt. Now watch this. And have heard their cry. 
by reason of their taskmasters. Say, Brother Harper, of course God hears prayer. The Bible tells us that God hears prayer. You know what? You might not have believed that if you were one of the children of Israel. Now, you'll hear preachers all the time say the children of Israel were in bondage for 400 years. That's not biblically the case. They, were, they, were, they sojourned in Egypt, according to the Word of God, for 430 years. But it wasn't until a new king arose who knew not Joseph that they were placed in bondage. But, so they weren't in bondage for 400 years. They are in bondage for 300 or so. We don't know the exact number. They've been in bondage for hundreds of years. Now imagine if you're a young boy living in the land of Egypt in bondage as one of the children of Israel. You grew up hearing about your great-great-grandfather who woke up every morning and the first thing he did was got on his knees and prayed and asked God to free them from their bondage, to deliver them from their taskmasters. Every afternoon he prayed the same thing. Every evening he prayed the same thing. And your great-great-grandfather died a slave. Your great-grandfather prayed three times a day, every day, morning, noon, and night, asking God to deliver them out of their bondage, and yet your great-grandfather died a slave, never tasted freedom for a moment. Your grandfather's prayed every day of his life, morning, noon, and night, and not one time has God answered, and now your grandfather has almost given up hope. Your dad has been praying every day of his life, morning, noon, and night, for God to deliver them from bondage, and yet they're still in bondage. And now, you as a young boy, you've been praying every, ever since you learned to pray, asking God to deliver them from bondage. You know, if your great-great-grandfather never saw an answer to prayer, and your great-grandfather never saw an answer to prayer, and your grandfather never saw an answer to prayer, and your dad never saw an answer to prayer, and you'd never seen an answer to prayer in your life, you'd start to think that God wasn't listening. But God says, Moses, listen, I've seen the affliction, and I have heard their cry. Isaiah 65 and verse 24, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. God says, Moses, I've seen it. Moses, I've heard it. But he says, Moses, I've felt it. I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I know their brokenheartedness. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, and yet without sin. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed, for His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He says, Moses... I'm not some disinterested God in the heavens watching and listening. But when they hurt Moses, I hurt. I, almighty God, I know their sorrows. But then he says something amazing. He says something that Moses thought he would never hear. Look at, the, look at verse 8. And I am come down to deliver them. Now who is he talking about delivering? We could go around the room and ask the question. We'd get lots of answers, and many of them would be correct answers. People would say, well, Brother Harper, he's talking about delivering the children of Israel. You're right. Brother Harper, the 12 tribes, correct. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 100% right. The people that have been in bondage for over 300 years, that's correct. But remember, God isn't talking to us. He's talking to Moses. Do you think Moses, 80 years of age, with his face to the ground, when God says, I have come down to deliver them, that Moses says, wow, God's going to deliver all the children of Israel. 
Would that have been your first thought? Let me remind you of something. Moses' mother has never tasted free air. Moses' daddy has been a slave every day of his life. His sister suffers the whip of the taskmasters of Egypt. His brother Aaron is a slave. I think Moses might have thought first about his mom and his dad and his aunts and his uncles before he thought about the whole nation of Israel. Whoever Moses thought about first, what do you think Moses, Moses, the first word that came to Moses' mind with his face to the ground there as he's talking to Almighty God when God says, Moses, I have come all the way from heaven down to earth. I've heard their cry. I know their sorrows. I've seen their affliction. And now I, Almighty God, I'm going to do something about it. I think Moses thought this. You have to really study the Hebrew preacher. You have to really get it because it's nestled there in the Hebrew. It's not really in there, but you get it only if you know perfect Hebrew, which of course I don't. I think Moses, with his face to the ground, thought, yippee. Wouldn't you have thought that? Have you ever heard? Let me ask you this. Is there anything that Moses could have heard from anybody on the planet that would have meant more than Almighty God saying, I have come down to deliver them. What a great statement. God says, Moses, I'm here. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to take care of it. I, the bush that is burning and not consumed, I have come down to deliver them. Wouldn't that be a great thing if God said that about this church? If God says, you know, preacher, I have come down to do something right here. Right here in Whiteville, North Carolina. I'm going to build a church where these aren't enough pews. I'm going to build a church where families are being rescued, marriages are being put back together, children are being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, lost people are walking the aisle, service after service, people are being sent off to go and serve the Lord as missionaries, evangelists, pastors all around the world. I'm going to build a church here that people are talking about for miles away. By the way, even lost people like to go to a church like that. Saved people enjoy, love going to a church like that. I'm going to build a church here where something is going on every time the doors are open. And if God said... I have come down to do that. We would all sit there and say, well, that's great, Lord. That's wonderful. I appreciate that. That's what God says in verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is coming to me, and I've also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh. Wait a minute. That's different than verse 8, isn't it? Verse 8, God says, I am come down to deliver them. Verse 10, He says, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh. It's a different story, isn't it? I can almost see Moses there on top of this mountain speaking to the bush that is burning and not consumed. And Moses lifts up his head. Me? Isn't that what God does though? Can I tell you something? The church I described a few minutes ago is exactly what God wants in Whiteville, North Carolina. 
That's exactly what God wants in every community within a hundred miles of here. It's what God wants everywhere in the world. The trouble is, most Christians are sitting back saying, go ahead and do it, Lord. If you'll do it, I'll go along for the ride. I'll show up every now and then on a Sunday morning. I might even show up occasionally on a Sunday night. Lord, you do something amazing and I'll be more than happy to be a part of it, just not one that you can depend on. That's not what God says. God doesn't say, I have come down to do it all. He says, I have come down to deliver them, but you're the one that's going to have to go to Pharaoh. You're the one that's going to have to knock on doors all over Whiteville. You're the one that's going to have to go to the surrounding communities and invite people. You're the one that's going to have to go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. And God says, I have come down, but you've got to go. Moses says, who am I? Moses' first question is a question of disbelief. Who am I? We would think that this guy that's standing there on the banks of the Red Sea with his rod outstretched, that when God said, I want you to go to Pharaoh, he'd have said, sounds good to me, Lord, I'm ready to go. By the way, that's how we preach it all the time, isn't it? The Christian who says no to God two or three times, we try to make them sound like that they've given up all their chances. Moses says no to God for two chapters. Moses says, who am I? that I should go into Pharaoh. Look, if you will, please, verse 11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? By the way, I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for a preacher or a Christian that hasn't had a who am I moment in their life. I've had the privilege to preach in, I think now, 12 different Bible colleges all over the United States and a couple around the world. And I've had the privilege to meet some of these young guys. And you hear the college president say, Boy, this guy is sharp. Boy, he's got great pulpit presence. He can sing like a bird. He's smart as a tack. He's going to turn the world upside down for God. You know, all the guys I've met like that, very few of them have ever amounted to anything for God. Because they are so used to trusting their own talents and their abilities that they fail to trust Almighty God. The guy that's going to do something for God is the guy that gets alone in his study and falls down on his face and says, Who am I, Lord? I can't pastor these people. I don't have the answers. I can't get up and go to a mission field and plant a church. I can't travel and preach. I can't teach a Sunday school class. I can't sing in the choir. I can't help with the youth. Who am I, Lord? I can't do it. Because once you realize you can't do it, you're going to be forced to trust Almighty God to help you to do it. Moses' first question is a question of disbelief. Who am I? Then I should go into faith. Well, watch God's answer, verse 12. And he said, certainly, I'll be with thee. (laughs) And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. Now I have brought forth the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God upon this mountain. Moses says, I can't do it, Lord. And God says, yep, I know. But I'm going with you. I'm going with you every step. I can't work with young people, Brother, Brother Harper. I just can't do it. I hate young people. They don't understand me. Only thing in my house I have, I don't have an iPad, an iPod. I don't have an iMac. I don't have an i anything except an iRon. It's the only thing i got in my house. Teenagers don't like me. My VCR still flashes 12 o'clock. By the way, there are people that still have VCRs. I don't understand teenagers. They don't understand me. Can I tell you a little secret about teenagers? Teenagers don't need someone to understand them. Teenagers don't need someone to dress like them. Teenagers don't need someone to act like them. Teenagers need someone to love them. That's all teenagers have ever, ever needed. Some of the most successful youth workers I've ever met are guys that are so old that they don't understand any word that comes out of the mouth of any single teenager. All they do is love on them. 
That's all teenagers have ever needed, and it's all they need today. Notice, Pharaoh, uh, the Lord says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Moses says, whoa, who am I is question number one of disbelief. Who am I that I should go into Pharaoh? And the Lord said, hey, it's not about you, Moses. Remember what I said in verse 8? I am come down. Certainly, I will be with thee. He's made us the same promise. Lo, I'm with you all way, even into the world. Matthew 28 and verse 20. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. There is a friend that sticketh close to any brother. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 24. We understand that God is with us every single step of the way. You would think that would be enough for Moses. You would think now he would volunteer and that he would go. But Moses is not even close to being done with his excuses. Moses' first question is a question of disbelief. His second question is a question of distraction. Notice, please, verse 13. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? Isn't that interesting? God told Moses the God of his father was there, and Moses hid his face. He's afraid to look upon God. Moses had no problems knowing who it was. Moses basically says this. It's kind of absurd when you stop and think about it. Lord, when I go to the children of Israel and I tell them that their 300, 400 years of prayers have been answered, that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is going to deliver them finally from their bondage, they're going to go, well, we're going to need to see some ID. They're going to say, what's your name? By the way, God gives Moses a name that none of the rest of the children of Israel would have known. How does that prove that he's God? How does that prove that Moses has spoken to him? But it's an incredible answer though, isn't it? The Lord says, not just who am I, but the second question is who are you? His first question was a question of disbelief. His second question is just a question of distraction. And God said, verse 14 unto Moses, I am that I am. You would do well to study what that means in Hebrew, what the actual phrase Yahweh means and how it impacts the lives of the Hebrews even to this very day. But what it says in our English Bible is every bit as poignant, isn't it? I am. tells us two specific things about God. Number one, He's not the I was God. You realize anything God was ever, ever able to do, He's still able to do. Right. He could part the Red Sea right now. He could keep you safe in a fiery furnace or in a den of lions right now. He could send down fire from heaven right now. He could send revival right now. Anything God was ever able to do, He's still able to do. He's not the I was God, and He's not just the I will be God. He's the I am God. He's no less God today than He was when Billy Sunday was alive, or D.L. Moody, or the Apostle Paul, or Moses himself. Himself, understand he's the I am God not only does it tell us that he's the, the ever-present God but he tells us it tells us he's the ever-sufficient God oh brother Harper I could never teach a Sunday school class I'm not brave enough and God says I am brother Harper I, I can't go knocking on doors I, I might be afraid my knees might tremble together I don't know that I have the courage and God says I do whatever you need to accomplish what God is calling you to do that's what he is. He's the all-sufficient God. Brother Harper, I can't teach the little kids. I don't even like the little kids. I like my grandchildren for a couple hours, but then I'm so happy to get rid of them after a little while. I don't know that I could teach little three- and four-year-olds. I don't know that I have the patience. And God says, I do. And I'll be with you every step of the way. I'm the I am God. 
Notice, please, this question of disbelief, this question of distraction. Then there's this question of dishonesty. Look, just skip down a few verses. won't read the entire two chapters. Look at verse 17. The Lord is going to lay out the whole plan for Moses. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, under the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Avites, and the Jebusites, under a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders. By the way, there's nothing wrong with calling them plagues, but God does call them wonders. I'll smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. That shall come to pass, that when you go, you shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor, and of her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them on, upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. Now Moses is going to respond to all of that. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice. Say, Brother Harper, why is that so significant? Look at verse 18, please. You should all be looking down at your Bible right now. Verse 18. And they shall hearken to thy voice. And Moses says, They will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. Let me ask you a simple question. If God says they're going to hearken to your voice, and you say, no, they won't, what did you just call God? Don't we do that though as Christians? Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, I want you to teach a Sunday school class. Oh, Lord, who am I to teach a Sunday school class? The Lord says, certainly I will be with thee. But Lord, I don't have the courage to teach a Sunday school class. The Lord says, I am that I am. I'm the courage that you need. You can do it. And then you say, well, you know, I don't think I can. What did you just call God? Let's give at least Moses the credit for at least saying it out loud. Moses said, they won't hearken to me. By the way, we glamorize what happens next, don't we? The Lord says to Moses, what is that in thine hand? He said, a rod. He said, cast it on the ground. He cast it on the ground. And it became a serpent. Let me ask you a question. Sometimes, again, we tend to whitewash the Word of God. If you kneeling down as a failure at everything you've ever tried. Almighty God has called you to go to Pharaoh and you've already told him no twice. Not only have you told him no, but you've listened to him say, I am to come down to deliver them. And you're talking to a bush that is burning, not consumed, while the starving, thirsty sheep are down there in the wilderness. And now you have the audacity to call Almighty God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, a liar. And he turns your stick into a snake. Would you think he was making you a pet? Would you say, well, that's an amazing miracle. You've just turned my stick into a snake. Thank you. What would you think God was going to do with that snake that he just made out of your stick? You're going to die. God is going to kill you. Your life is over. You don't call Almighty God a liar and get by with it like you just did, Moses. Throw your stick on the ground. There's a snake. What does Moses do? Read the last part of the verse. And Moses fled from before it. He doesn't say, well, glory, what a great miracle. No, 80-year-old barefoot Moses got off of his knees and ran. 
You ever seen an 80-year-old get up off their knees? It takes a minute or two. Now, I know Moses isn't your average 80 years old. I understand that. Even when he died at 120, his eye was not dim, nor was his natural force abated. I understand he's not your typical 80-year-old. But 80-year-olds take a few minutes to get up off their knees. I'm only 52, and it takes me longer to get up off my knees than it did just a few years ago. I don't know when it started, preacher, but I started making old man noises a few years ago. I don't want to. When I drop something, I don't plan to go... When I pick it up, I just do. It just comes out. Now, 80-year-old Moses, he's pretty sure he's going to die, don't you think? Why else would he have ran from a miracle that God just did? Why would he not have stepped back and said, Wow, what a great God you are. You call God a liar, you pretty much ought to expect to die. But he's too gracious for that most of the time. Lord says, pick it up. Moses, to his credit, picks it up. He says, stick your hand in your bosom. He sticks it in. It comes out leprous. He sticks it back in. It comes out like it was before. Then God actually prophesies the first plague. He said, if that doesn't work, take some water from the river, pour it on the ground, and turn to blood right before their eyes. Say, Brother Harper, that's, that's where Moses has an advantage over all of us. God gave him miracles that he could do. Oh, yeah, it's true. But, you know, when you stop and think about it, Moses, and you can't quantify or evaluate miracles, but certainly some of them stand out more than others. When you look at these three miracles, they're almost parlor tricks compared to cleansing a leper, raising Lazarus from the dead, feeding 5,000 plus women and children with five loaves and two fishes, walking on the water. See, i got a book full of miracles. Moses just has three or four. By the way, There's a greater miracle than all of those that I mentioned. Do you ever stop and think about this simple statement? You know there's only one miracle that God ever did that hurt him. Only one miracle that God's ever accomplished that caused him pain, physically and personally. That was saving our souls. There is no miracle that compares to salvation. Moses might be able to turn a stick into a snake. Moses might be able to turn his hand leprous, might be able to pour water out and have it turn to blood, but he couldn't stand up and say, gone, 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 yes, my sins are gone. Now my soul is free and in my heart's a song buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally, praise God. My sins are gone. Notice, please, this question of disbelief, this question of distraction, this question of dishonesty. Next, next, quickly, please, this question of disability. Go down to verse 10, please. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Moses says, Lord, you may not know this, but I don't talk very well. And the Lord said, Oh! I forgot. Isn't it amazing how we often describe to an all-knowing God what our shortcomings are? See, when we pick a team, we pick a team based upon their strengths. God picks a team in spite of their weaknesses. (laughs) By the way, many Bible scholars believe Moses has a stuttering problem. I don't see it anywhere else in the Scripture except right here that Moses has a speech impediment. And it's just Moses saying that. And nothing else that Moses has said for the last two chapters has been true. By the way, God can use a stutterer, can't He? 
You ever hear the old joke? Isn't it funny how some jokes are so old that they're new again? This man put an ad in the newspaper. He's going to sell Bibles door to door. And people came out to get a case of Bibles to take them and to sell them. And, uh, and, and he would reap the profits from selling Bibles door to door. And the last guy in line, there was one case of Bibles left, one more guy in the line. And the guy walked up and he said, ex- ex- excuse, ex- excuse me, excuse, excuse me, but I'd like, I'd, 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 I'd like to sell Bibles. The guy felt bad. There's no way a man with this kind of stuttering problem could sell Bibles door to door. But he also knew he'd get in trouble if he didn't, if he discriminated, so he gave him a case of Bibles. He knew he'd be back in just a few minutes, and he'd try to encourage him because he'd be sad that he didn't sell any. Twenty minutes later, the man came back with a big handful of money and an empty box of Bibles. Twenty minutes. The man said, that's amazing. No one in history has sold a case of Bibles that quickly. He said, what's your sales secret? He said, well, I, I, go, to, I, go, I go to the door and knock on the door. And, and when they, when they op, 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 open the door, I, I, I said, would you like to buy a Bible? Or would you like me to read it to you? Sold them all in 20 minutes. God can use a stutterer, can't he? But Moses isn't a stutterer. By the way, I'm not buying what Moses has to sell here either. Notice what he says. Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken of thy servant. I'm here to tell you this sounds pretty Shakespearean to me. Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor uh, spoken of thy servant. Sounds pretty good. If Moses wanted to convince God that he couldn't speak well, he should have not spoken well. My sister-in-law teaches English in a Christian school in uh, West Virginia. And yes, they do actually have English in Christian schools in West Virginia. And she's one of those that's one of those grammar, uh, grammar police kind of people. She hates it when people use bad grammar. She was sitting in a restaurant by herself in a booth. Behind her in the next booth were two ladies sitting across from each other. Two little old West Virginian ladies. And they were having a big discussion, actually a heated argument. One of the ladies was trying to convince the other one to buy a GPS for her car. The other lady would have none of it. She wanted no technology at all. And back and forth it went. Finally, the one lady said, why do I need one of those GPS things? And the other lady said, if you get one of those, you'll always be able to find anything you're looking for. The other lady said, well, then I don't need one. She said, and I quote, I ain't never not found nothing. By the way, it's the only quadruple negative in the history of the English language. I ain't never not found nothing. Had Moses said, I ain't never not been talking no good, Lord. I might believe Moses. But, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Moses, you shouldn't sound so eloquent when you're trying to convince God that you're not eloquent. And you might as well not try to convince the God that made you that you don't talk good enough to do the job that he's calling you to do. Moses, what the Lord says, the Lord said to Moses, Who hath made man's mouth, who maketh the dumb, or the deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? We preach Moses so wrong. He's my favorite Old Testament Bible character. I'm relatively certain I'll preach about him at least one more time this week. I love to study about Moses more than anybody else in the Old Testament. He dominates more chapters dedicated to the life of Moses in the Old Testament than any other person in the Old Testament. Moses dominates the Old Testament. He's mentioned over 700 times in the Word of God towers above the rest of the Bible except for Christ and the Apostle Paul. There's no one as influential as Moses. But we always preach that Moses was this great leader. We almost preach it as if God 
had a really lucky day when he found this diamond in a rough, Moses, and he just polished him up just a little bit and turned him into this great leader. See, the story of Moses isn't the story of a great leader. It's not the story of a great man. It's the story of a God who takes a man who can't talk and turns him into the greatest spokesman of the Old Testament. It's the story of a man who's doubted God and fled from God that God turns into this great giant of the Old Testament. It's the story of a man who couldn't lead the, the, the sheep to water, but he's going to lead the children of Israel to the banks of the promised land. It's the story of a man who fled from Pharaoh, who's going to stand toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. It's the story of God taking someone who's been a failure at everything and turns him into one of the greatest success stories in the history of mankind. See, the story of Moses is not the story of a great man. It's the story of a great God who takes a stuttering imbecile and turns him into the greatest human leader that's ever lived. By the way, I'm not so sure Moses was such a great leader. Moses was such a great follower that it looks like he was a great leader. Realize every place that Moses went, there was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire over his head telling him exactly which way to go. And when Moses died and God came to Joshua after God Himself buried the body of Moses, when, when God came to Joshua and He says, hey listen, Moses is dead. He didn't say, Moses, the part of the Red Sea is dead. He didn't say, Moses, the giver of the commandments is dead. He didn't say, Moses, the great leader is dead. He didn't say, Moses, the giant of a man is dead. What did He say? Moses, my servant is dead. Moses was such a great follower that we now call him a great leader. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And in due time, He will lift you up. This isn't the story of a great man. This is the story of a great God. Let me put it this way. If God can use this failure of a human being that we see in Exodus chapter 2 and chapter 3, named Moses, He can use anybody. It's amazing. We'll all say, well, I can't be like Moses in Exodus chapter 14. But everyone in this room would admit that we see a lot of ourselves in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4. I'm here to tell you, if we can be like Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, why can't we be like Moses in Exodus chapter 14? Surely that's enough. God's patience is obviously running out. Who hath made man's mouth? Who maketh the dumb or the deaf or the singer of the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will teach thee what thou shalt say. Moses' last question is his question of disrespect. Moses becomes a teenager. Now I realize nobody in this room has ever seen a teenager do what I'm going to describe. When my daughter was younger, five and six years old, I would say, Charity, go clean your room. She would say, yes, sir, and go clean her room. Something happened about 13 or 14. Every now and then I would say, Charity, go clean your room. And she would do this number here. (sighs) Okay. I don't know what that means. But never as a father have I said, Oh, you exhaled. You don't have to do it now. It never worked. But teenagers do it everywhere, don't they? We've all seen teenagers do it. That's what Moses does. Watch what Moses says, please. But he said, and he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. Bible scholars will disagree. Either Moses is saying, can't you find somebody else? Or Moses is saying, all right, if you're going to make me go, I'll go. 
Finally, by the way, parents, if you ever got mad at your teenager for exhaling like that, you're in really, really, really good company. Out of all the things Moses has said, this is the first time. Look at verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now we've heard a lot about this, this verse 14 and we'll be done after this. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee, and when he seeth thee, he'll be glad in his heart. There are a couple of things that you've probably seen before, maybe one you haven't noticed before. Either this verse is telling us about the omniscience of God, or the omnipresence of God, or both. Either God had a conversation with Moses at the same time he was having a conversation with Aaron, because he's everywhere at the same time. And Aaron just agreed faster than Moses and is already on his way. Or God knew what Moses was going to say and went to Aaron early that morning and told him to get on the road and Aaron is already coming. Either it indicates to us his omnipresence or his omniscience, one or the other. And we understand that. But there's a simple question I want to ask you. Who freed Aaron? Aaron didn't have any sick days built up. He couldn't just take vacation. He couldn't say, hey, I'm, I'm taking the family and going out to visit my brother in the wilderness of Midian. There wasn't a hole in the fence he could sneak under. Aaron's a slave. Who freed Aaron? Were there any plagues before Aaron was freed? Did Moses stand in front of Pharaoh and say, let my brother go before Aaron was freed? Did God need Moses' help to free Aaron? Who freed Aaron? Now the obvious answer that we seem to skip over all the time, Christian, the obvious answer is God did. Can I point this out? The secret to the passage is not what Moses does or what Moses says. The secret to the passage is in verse 8 of chapter 3. When God said it, I am come down to deliver them. God didn't need Moses. An amazing thing. God didn't need Moses. But Moses sure needed God. We would have never mentioned his name based upon his qualifications as a shepherd. If you study Egyptian history, you'll find there are two different people that some people believe are Moses when you read about it. Both of them have one little sentence in all of Egyptian history. They're not even mentioned in Egyptian history as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses, at best, would have been a nobody based upon his success as an Egyptian. He'd have been a nobody based upon his being wanted as a murderer. No one would know Moses' name. God isn't sitting at the, in the heavens going, boy, I sure hope Moses helps me out on this so I can free the children of Israel. No, God could have freed the children of Israel any time He wanted. Yes, right. This passage isn't to decide whether God's going to free the children of Israel. It's to decide whether Moses is going to do what God wants him to do or not. Moses finally surrenders, and because of that, watch this. Do you realize the name of Moses is revered by almost every single religion on the face of the earth? Do you realize there is not a major religion on this planet that doesn't consider Moses a prophet? He would never have been known had he not stood up and did what God called him to do. See, the fact is, we talk about it all the time, the responsibility of serving God, the necessity of people serving God, the necessity to surrender to serve God, 
Understand, all those things are true. We find them all in the Word of God. But I think sometimes we fail to remember that it's literally a privilege to serve God. Moses is a nobody before he meets God on this mountain. And had he not surrendered, he'd have been a nobody after he met God on the mountain. God didn't need him. He could have delivered the children of Israel. He could have sent one angel in and killed over 186,000 Egyptians in one night if he wanted to. But God takes this man who's a loser, who doesn't speak well, who's a murderer, a fugitive, a failure, and says, now Moses, I've come down to deliver the children of Israel. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And when Moses finally agreed to what God was calling him to do, God put his name on every tongue in the world. Let me tell you something, Christian. Get this. God will do a work here in Whiteville, North Carolina. The only question is, are you going to be a part of it? You're going to sit back and wait for someone else to do it. You're going to sit back and wait for God to just drive people in. Or are you going to say, here am I. Send me. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. No one will do it. Not the story of a great man, but the story of a great God. If your head's bowed and your eyes closed, please. Hannah will come and she'll bow her head and close her eyes when she gets behind her face. I know many of you aren't members of this particular church who come to visit help and support the So let's not just make the invitation about this church.